0: Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com UCTV. And thanks. My
1: name is Raul Fernandez, and I am the director of something called the UC Cuba Academic Initiative which is a consortium of uh, professors and uh, PhD students across all nine campuses. And we are involved in this program, I think both uh, Lisa Garcia Bedoya this morning and Laura Enriquez are our, two of our active UC people here in Berkeley. We have uh, four uh, members of this panel. I'm going to introduce them very briefly so we can move on. Uh, Darius Anderson is the founder and CEO of Platinum Advisors. You can actually read more extensively in your booklet details about him. Professor Carl Boyd comes to us from the USC, from of Southern California, and I'm going to let him say exactly who he is. Bill Martinez is well known to a lot of us. He's an immigration attorney and, and very importantly, a Cuban music promoter in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Michael Zucato is president to a very important company, Cuba Travel Services because it's the only one that gives us direct flights from uh, California to Havana. So I encourage all of you to uh, sponsor and take flights with Cuba Travel Services. So we will start with uh, Darius Anderson has not arrived yet, I don't believe. So we will begin with Bill Martinez, and we'll try and limit each presentation to about 10 minutes.
2: Uh, Thank you for uh, being here. It's a pleasure to be here. I got into doing this US-Cuba cultural work uh, in 93 when I was working with a, uh, an organization called the Encuentro del Canto Popular. It was a festival we created in the Mission District in San Francisco to, to promote uh, music that spoke about social change, peace and love, and all that stuff. In, nine, uh, in, in 93, uh, I got a call from the uh, State Department. We were trying for the first time to bring a Cuban group to the US or to this festival, the group Mescla. Um, and uh, a day before the group was supposed to leave, uh, I got no one could find the file. Uh, they were supposed to be at the Smithsonian uh, and then Stanford and other organizations and really prestigious venues. Everything looked great. We were told all along, no problem, everything's fine. Everything's great. Um, so i 'm at the, my, my, my real job at the bar Association and, and I finally got a call from the State Department from Dennis Hayes at the State Department, and he goes, "Yeah, I got your file right here. I got your file and I said, "Great, so are they going to be approved? Are they going to come to the u s now because we've got we 're all ready to go he says they're not going anywhere. I said, well, what do you mean? And he explained, oh, they're, they're not going to make it. Uh, and I said, well, can you give me something in writing that I can give to the d- various presenters across the country about this? And he, and he said in this really ugly way, I don't have to, t- you, you don't need anything. They're Cubans, and that's all you need to know. And he hung up on me. And he hung up on me. That, this then became my mission. <laughs> <laughs> So we filed a federal lawsuit, and uh, the lawsuit went on for, for two years or so, and, and uh, Wayne Smith was one of our, our witnesses, and, and I, I, we did a great job, I thought, fighting this case to, to make sure that Cubans could perform in the United States. And um, unfortunately, we lost. It was, the, the, the trial was sort of a trip. The, the guy was like, Colombo walked in there for the government, he goes... Uh, You know, uh, Your Honor, we can do anything we want and, you know, you can't touch us. We could do things that are, you know, like uh, unconstitutional maybe or like discriminatory. It doesn't make a difference. You can't touch us. Judge turned red in the face and we looked at each other and unfortunately we lost because I guess they could get away with it. They have unfettered (laughs) executive discretion to make those calls. The groups did you know we didn 't succeed then, but fortunately, the mood of the uh, during the Clinton administration allowed us to finally sort of get it, and we were allowed to bring Cuban artists in in increments we got first uh, I think it was Chucho Valdez and the Irakere four. We got four members of, of, of Iraquere who play here in the Bay Area mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere. We then got Changuito, the Timbalero, with the banban. Little by little, we opened the door so our artists come in. When we finally got all the banban in uh, around 96, 95, thereabouts, uh, we knew that we really could relatively uh, uh, have, have relative confidence that these events could happen, we could pull these things off. And so uh, we were able, in the 90s, during the Clinton administration, we were able to bring in many, many groups. And it led to, you know, Ry Cooter's bringing the Buena Vista Social Club to fruition, sort of by by happenstance (coughs) that he was there actually for another project. The visas were denied for the African artists at that time. The Malian artists weren't able to make it to Cuba. But while he was there, he decided to hook up with these uh, uh, Afro-Cuban uh, artists that were performed. Really, the, the genesis of the Afro-Cuban All-Stars, Juan de Marcos, got together with uh, Rai, and they put together the Buena Vista Social Club. They made it to Carnegie Hall. And actually, that was sort of the uh, 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 monumental historical moment then. We really knew we arrived and when I think about what, the you know, we then, you know, during the Bush administration, all that ended and it was, it was like starting from scratch. We didn't get anybody in. And I keep thinking about the value of the work that we do and, and, and think of the relationships that, that, that were created when Buena Vista Social Club came over here. Think of the, the connections that our communities made every time we were able to bring uh, US, uh, Cuban artists to the U.S., and I, and I kept thinking in the back of my mind, well, what's wrong with with, with having these? What's, what's wrong with these uh, exchanges? Culture is communication. And what happens when you block cultural exchanges? What happens when you block communication? You get more rumors. You get more myth. You get more lies. And it, it gets us nowhere. And we should be about much more higher values. This is what, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, when I say it, but when I was doing some of our research for preparing um, our lawsuit and all that, uh, you know, we I came to the the roots of, of some of this, the mindset behind some of these restrictions on visas and such. And I and um, when they created these operations, Operation Mongoose and all that, and, and when uh, the Castro uh, administration began. Um, it, Look at some of the words in, in Operation Mongoose about how they control things, the messaging. Activate key public leaders in Latin America. Make them timely, strong statements about Castro-communist threat to hemisphere and failures of the regime towards workers. Uh, produce material for major psychological impact. And they get to talking about visas and licenses and ways for us to connect and, and, and how we're getting played. And that's how I look at a, a, a lot of what's going on is we get these operations. We get certain policies that we think are unchangeable, that is so ingrained in, in our culture. It, when it doesn't have to be that way. We talked about hegemonic relationships. We talked about the arrogance of, 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 our, of, our, domin- of, of our policies um, sort of controlling the shots. Um, it goes back to sort of the... Uh, a mindset of the Monroe Doctrine and and Manifest Destiny and all that. (laughs) You really think about it, the the big picture. You know, we have to create new paradigms now, and culture can make it happen. we have now, I can say, with the current administration, since uh, we, 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 we experimented again, as soon as Obama came into power, we were able to get Silvio Rodriguez in. And then we got all you know the same sort of incremental uh, uh, developments happened. So I can tell you now, we have uh, visas for the 75-member uh, symphonic orchestra of Cuba that's going to be coming in to the country in a couple of weeks. Uh, here in the Bay Area, you can see Septeto Nacional, Orquesta Aragón. We have um, uh, a lot of interesting projects coming up. And I'm actually recommending to as many clients as I can get your petitions in now because if, uh, if things don't turn out well in November, who knows how things are going to get reversed and we could be back to square one and, and have to get to Cuba some other ways. And, you know, we, that's for the Cuban visa artists that come here. You know, we've also been bringing U.S. artists to, to Cuba we were able to, un- even under the Bush administration, we were able to put together this concert with this group called Audio Slave, otherwise known as Rage Against the Machine. And the way we got that license remarkably under the, the Bush administration was we sort of used their words about, you know, the, the, the U.S. government's policy had been, you know, do what you can to hasten the transition to democracy. You know, get to the youth. And say, so, okay, well, well, the youth is going to listen to these guys because they're radical, wild, crazy guys. And and so they, they you know, so we actually got it approved. And actually, the really crazy thing about that license is it actually authorized us to do a commercial uh, CD and DVD package. It never happened before. And I don't think it's been licensed to do that since. But it was sort of it was great that that happened at that moment. And so... Um, you know it's a two-way street you know that we're looking for where cuban artists can, cubans of all kinds can come here and that uh, us artists and the rest of us can go to, to cuba uh, with some uh, like we would normalize relations i'll stop there okay. and thank you thank you, thank you.
3: Professor Carl Voigt Well, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Um, I think, as, as we've seen all day, we're, we're, we're speaking to people that are um, truly convinced that there's an opportunity to engage with, with Cuba. And I think that the, I'm going to speak about university exchange programs and the things that we've been doing at the University of Southern California, but I think I'm going to give the message at the beginning and I'll give it to you at the end. Those of you, particularly in the room, who are involved in academic institutions or otherwise, um, Organize. Organize the programs. Take as many of our young people, take as many of your graduate students, your undergraduate students to there, because the value of seeing for yourself, um, you can listen to what other people tell you and it becomes ideology propaganda, but by taking, taking young people, the, they, they can see through. Uh, I wish you um, could have sat with my undergrads in the U.S. Uh, intersection in Cuba where they rolled out this rather slick young man from the State Department to issue what, what, you know, what was the company line. And these young undergrads just had a field day, had him backing <laughs> up. I mean, they listened for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then just began a conversation. Um, at the University of Southern California, we, we adopted a policy um, pro- more than over a decade and a half ago. If you're going to teach people about the world around us, you've got to get them on planes. And so our movement to, and our interest in going to Cuba is very much involved with that. Um, you, you being able to see for yourself, experience, taste, smell, touch. Um, and it comes from the sort of basic notion that to learn, you want to put your students in an environment where they don't understand the rules have to really think, begin to really use the powers of observation and analyze. And Cuba provides an, an amazing opportunity for, for students of any discipline. I'm going to talk specifically about business schools, because in, to a large extent, business schools are the things that – it's an economic embargo. It's a blockade against business people doing things. Um, we, the University of Southern California, we've done 16 visits. Uh, between 2001, actually, Kirby's not here at the moment. He's, but he was the enabler. I went to uh, one of his U.S.-Cuba business summits back in 2000. We went across for a day. I talked to the minister, the vice minister of uh, education. Said, "Would you invite us to come?" We. She said, absolutely, and then from there we started to try to develop programs. We ran programs till 2007 when the Bush administration sent very, very strongly worded um, letters to all of the business schools in the U.S. that had been taking students to, to Cuba, various programs, and, and basically threatened – in our case, they said, we don't think – that you've been doing it according to policy. You should stop. Other schools got much stronger letters saying, we believe that you have violated US policy, and if you continue, we will take you to court. In our case, we believe that we were meeting not only the letter, but the spirit of the law, and we wanted to take on the US government. Well, talk to universities' general counsels, and they go, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> so our programs, along with everybody else's, were discontinued in 2007. For those of you at universities, you know that one of the one of the more positive things that the Obama administration has done has has reformulated, re promulgated, the travel requirements or restrictions on universities, and basically opened it. It's made it easy. So if you're a related, if you're involved with the university, it's not hard. Okay, in the sense that that. If you have students that are in a class where they're getting academic credit, whether it's an independent study, or whether it's a class where, where a trip that was related to it could enhance the class, you are allowed to travel. You may go down to Cuba yourself to set it up without, um, without any, you don't even need, you don't need a special license or anything. What's interesting and sad, before, um, t- before 2011, the real problems with going to Cuba was dealing with the US and all the bureaucracy and getting the special licenses and making sure that you kept all your paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Now, from the point of view of universities, that's easy. The biggest problem that we have now is, as, as you all know, that whenever the US changes its policies and says you know, the US says, we're going to use people-to-people programs to destabilize and bring about regime change in Cuba, the Cubans go, now what does that mean? And so for us, organizing programs in Cuba have become um, very difficult, Um, trying to find the right organizations. Previously, we would organize our programs through the Ministry of Foreign Investment, which no longer exists, is now part of the Ministry of, of Trade. But we were, being business students, MBAs in particular, The then deputy minister, Ernesto Senti, saw the benefit of having prospective business people travel to Cuba. And whatever he did behind the scenes took control of these U.S. programs to go to Cuba away from the Ministry of Education to his ministry. We had problems. We tried to organize programs with the Ministry of Education, with the universities there, and what they want to do is they want to sit you in a classroom and lecture at you for a week, two weeks, however long you're there, eight hours a day, which is not what we want. We are quite capable of doing those boring lectures here. Um, Sorry. (laughs) to all my colleagues out there who don't do those things, but I put myself to sleep whenever I have to lecture too. Um, So... (laughs) The point on this is that we wanted to get there and get out and see people and touch and feel and, and, and engage. Um, to step back a little bit, it's a fan, fantastic, fascinating learning laboratory. There's arguably nowhere else on earth. My dean, when we first asked to go, he said, yeah, with, with all respect, quote, Cuba's not even a spit in the ocean when it comes to economic impact. We don't trade. They don't, and then I say, yeah, but Cuba's managed to bring the world to the brink on numerous occasions. And taking people to Cuba to un- get them to understand. It's one of the last planned economies, the transition. It's, it's in a fabulous learning environment for, for students, for anybody, to say, how do you build an economy? One of the things that we've forgotten, and, we, and U.S. economists made really, really bad mistakes when they tried to help the, the then Soviet Union make the transition, is that they forgot... That you have to build the institutions, and for those who have traveled to Cuba, okay, um, you understand that Cuba lacks the basic institutions to support modern, a modern uh, economy. Just getting vegetables from the fields to the to the you know from the field to the fork, the logistics, but more importantly, the credit systems, the information systems. And so, from, from our perspective, uh, uh, as academics and as people who take students here, getting the Cubans, uh, setting aside the politics, you know, I was talking with one of my colleagues over here. In a way, business schools, and we, we like to have it both ways we like to be agnostic. We like to say we're agnostic to the politics of the situation. How can we engage in building a viable economy that helps improve the prosperity, not only of the Cubans, but of us? One of my students, um, who was an MBA MD, did a project. And for those of you who know this about the biotech center there, they have a therapeutic that treats vascular degeneration and advanced uh, diabetics. And he, he did the estimate being a business student, he figured that over a five-year period, having access to that drug, the U.S. would save $11 billion. Okay? That they have the drug, we don't have it. By using it here, our solution to the problem of advanced vascular degeneration is just chop off the leg, put the person in a wheelchair, and pay them public assistance to help them with their new life in a wheelchair. That's the kind of learning that we can get by going there, seeing what what the Cubans have have done. Um, The link between business and politics becomes really live when you get there. And our students are smart enough, we would get briefings from MinREX, the Ministry of Foreign Foreign Relations, who would come in and they would talk about the five and and all of the things on our side, and we'd ask questions. And for the first time, the students begin to get real information. Um, To put our money where our mouth is, I have helped other business schools. I've taken just under 20 different business schools, including, and I made a list here somewhere... um, the East Coast schools, MIT, Dartmouth, New York University, Columbia, Wharton, Duke, uh, SMU, UCLA, San Diego State, uh, and other universities to go down there and and meet and develop programs. The unfortunate thing right now is, is that the way that the Cubans are organizing things, and we have to crack this nut while we're sitting here, we're negotiating with what we think might be a new center at the University of Afana that might be able to organize programs for us that will get us to be able to see what we want, we, 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 we want to see and learn. From the point of view of the Cubans, they have been exceptionally open, complete open dialogue. They never put a restriction on us to where we wanted to go, except, obviously, we didn't want to go to military. It was always, but we, wherever we asked to go, whoever we asked to speak to, they were willing to facilitate the conversations, because their argument is that they can learn from the questions that US business students ask. Right, and and we can learn at the same time. Um, I think that those are sort of the basic the basic uh, comments that I want to make. Other than to to return to the opening conversation, uh, opening point that I made in this conversation is that it helps us and it helps them if we engage in these trips. Um, and for those of you who are a little timid about doing it, we've organized I think sixteen of them. It gets a little scary at the beginning, but it's easy to do. We've got the Transportation over Remind here. Remind me to give me. I can give you give me my card, right? Just, <laughs> um, really and so it should be done. So for those of you who are engaged in this kind of stuff, and for those of you who are also engaged in humanitarian um, type type things, find a reason to go. Okay, and I'll, I'll conclude with that comment. You want me to? Start Michael, please. Michael
1: Sokol.
4: Good afternoon. My um, name is Michael Zucato of Cuba Travel Services. I had a kind of more of a formal um, PowerPoint to do, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to hit the highlights of our company um, so we can focus more on kind of the roundtable discussion, I guess, with the group and having some interaction from the, from the people here. Um, Cuba Travel Services is a company that was incorporated in 1999, uh, <coughs> shortly after President Clinton authorized the direct flights from cities other than Miami to cities in Cuba other than Havana. Uh, before this policy change, only flights from Miami, Havana were, were authorized. Uh, one, of our company goal, one of our company's goals at that time, and really still is, uh, to establish a cultural and economic bridge between California and Cuba, while also providing an efficient, cost-effective uh, uh, solution for Cuban Americans to visit their families. Uh, that's kind of the principles of our, of our company. Um, in 2000, we operated the first nonstop flight from Los Angeles uh, to Havana in more than 40 years. Uh, This service continued on a weekly basis up until July 2004, uh, when President Bush changed the the travel restrictions. In 2001, we operated the first uh, nonstop flight between Miami and Sinfuegos, Cuba. Uh, And uh, in 2011, the first nonstop flight between San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Santiago de Cuba. Um, earlier this month, also we did a we did kind of an ad hoc flight, um, operated the first flight operated by United Airlines between Houston and Havana. So you can see a lot of growth and a lot of uh, interest in, in expanding uh, routes. Um, today, CTS operates about 10 flights per week on average between Miami and Cuba, and we operate now the weekly flight from from Los Angeles International to Havana, departing on Tuesdays. Um, as some of you know, we've also been working closely with um, with Congresswoman Lee's office and also with, with uh, Darius's help to help uh, kind of launch this effort to do this flight from Oakland. Uh, it's had a lot of challenges. There's tremendous interest here in the Bay Area to do this flight, which we know. Um, there's a lot of challenges as well, especially now that uh, when you don't have the Cuban-American population that they have in Miami, uh, it's challenging, um, especially now that there's been kind of a uh, slowdown, if you will, or almost elimination of license renewals. Um, but uh, our business really, really depends on, on on all licensed travelers, but especially those those groups, uh, especially from the West Coast. Um, I think right now our flight from Miami, or I'm sorry, my, our flight from um, Los Angeles to Havana is the only nonstop flight on the West Coast of the Caribbean, right? because as most of you guys know, live in California, people travel to, to Mexico or, or to, to Hawaii and other places. But uh, uh, so I think right now we have the only nonstop flight besides a seasonal flight to Puerto Rico. Um, um, how many people, just to do a quick survey similar to one Kirby did earlier, um, assuming most of you have traveled to Cuba within since 2000, how many people from that are from the Bay Area uh, traveled from Mexico?
1: Oh, no.
4: This is my problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta but I understand why. I understand why. That. <laughs> how, how, many, how many travel from, from, my, from Miami, uh, Miami charter flights? Peter, I know you only fly L.A., right? <laughs> and how many have tried the Los Angeles flight, the flight from Los Angeles? Great. I know everyone on the panel has, has done a Yeah. yeah. So I, I encourage you guys really to try it. When you, when, for those of you living in the Bay Area, you can depart here at 7 a.m. in the morning. You can connect to our flight at, at 11. You can be in Havana by 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So it's really the quickest way uh, for you to, to, to get to Havana from here. Um, that's really all I have to say I'll be around if you, if you guys need more information. Um, I, I did want to recognize someone in the crowd, a, a friend that really he should be here somewhere on the panel is, is Sal Landau and, and Sal all you've done you know for relationships with Cuba and, and really if you guys want to know anything about Cuba he's really <laughs> a person.
1: Our last presenter is Darius Anderson, who's the founder and CEO of Platinum Advisors, and of course one of the sponsors of the conference.
5: Thank you. Um, I apologize for being a little late. I got stuck in traffic coming down from Sacramento. Um, I want to start by thanking a few people. I, um, this was uh, is not only a personal passion but a vision. And I want to thank Mark um, and Jack from IGS for helping put this together, and the other folks from Berkeley that stepped in to go ahead and put the conference together. And I'll tell you, I I enjoyed the planning process. Uh, My great friend Julia came out, who means a lot to me, and has been a great mentor to me um, uh, in my love and passion for Cuba. Uh, I, like many of you, started my passion and vision for Cuba illegally in uh, the 80s. Um, (laughs) It's all right. I can say it now. It's a statute of limitations is run. Um, uh, uh, I went through Toronto when I was in college because uh, many folks were going to Fort Lauderdale, and I just found it at the time when I was going to GW that it'd be very boring and found Cuba to be a lot more interesting, and (laughs) fell in love with the island in 1986. And uh, people found out about my passion for Cuba. And one day I got a call from Michael that said the then uh, head of the intersection was in town. And at the time, uh, I was the finance director for Governor Gray Davis. um, And Michael said, hey, the head of the intersection's in town. He'd love to come meet you. Uh, We met. And I helped put together the first resolution by a major legislature that encouraged the US Congress to lift the trade embargo. Uh, California was the first to get through both the Assembly, the Senate, and we got a signature by the governor at the time. And it was a big deal. And
4: can I tell you something really quick? Sorry to interrupt you. Sure. My apologies. On that that point, I think it's important to know important fact. That uh, before we met Darius that time, time, uh, we actually had a meeting with the Speaker of the House um, asking him to get his support on, on passing this resolution in the state of California. He was unable to do it. Uh, about an hour later, I went to Darius's office, and he looked at it, 10 minutes, and said, no problem, we'll get right on it. And I think within 30 days, that resolution was passed. So, I mean, really, Darius, <laughs> that's
5: the truth. uh, And and part of this is, and and, uh, I know other people have mentioned this, is for those that have been there and those that have not, that uh, Cuba evokes passion, passion on all levels, passion for artists, passions for music, passions for history. Um, And we can't let the barriers that either governments put up go ahead and restrict um, the exchange of ideas, and the exchange of arts, and the exchange of discussions. And we as travelers, and we as academics, and we as you know general business folks have to continue to push the envelope. Uh, since Michael started in 2000, uh, we just had our 10th anniversary. We brought down over 800 people. I've operated both a people-to-people license and a humanitarian license. And I will continue to fight every single time I can to go ahead and bring more people to the island because it doesn't matter if they're Democrat, Republican, Green. They're educated when they get down there. They learn more about the realities of what's going on in the ground with Cuban people, Cuban government, whatever else it is. And it's very important for us because I do not believe if we are going to get major changes, the changes have to occur on a one-on-one basis. It has to occur with members of the House, members of the Senate, members of the administration, hearing from people that are friends of theirs, people that have gone there. Uh, I had the good fortune of bringing Michael Mendavi And Michael is a very, very Republican member. And he is a member of all of the elite Republican clubs, of which I am not a member. And after he came back, he said, you know what, Darius, I was absolutely amazed at what the reality. So many people had told me and had manipulated the facts and had given me misinformation And he's now fallen in love with the island. He's been down with me twice. And what I'm trying to do is not only do the exchanges that direction, but I've really been pushing hard to bring more Cubans here. Uh, I just had a gentleman by the name of Fernando Fernandez, uh, who is one of the great blenders and tasters that blends Cuban cigars and Cuban rum, two of my favorite things. (laughs) And I hosted an event in the Napa Valley... Um, with a group of vintners uh, to show off his palate and how amazing his sense, and he talked all about the richer Roman history and how a cigar is not just a cigar, no <laughs> pun intended, but that it is in four different stages with regard to flavors. And all of these uh, vintners that walked out of the, that Afternoon and dinner that night became Cubophiles. They've all now followed up with me. They all want to go. They want to experience it. They want to go ahead and be a part of this uh, amazing island. So, um, I think it would be great to open up for questions. Um, You know, I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, It's something that I will never give up on, and I'm going to continue to go ahead and do whatever I can uh, to make a difference on the ground. And I I do want to thank Michael because if it weren't for Michael NCTS. None of this would have been possible because in the early days he helped me arrange a license. He does all the travel. His staff is amazing. I don't know if Todd is here. Um, they do a fabulous, fabulous job. So, thank you.
1: As before, we're passing our little cards and you can write all the questions you want in them and then we'll read them off. So we can move a little quicker. <clears throat> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the first one is for Bill Martinez. When Silvio Rodriguez was denied a visa to come to the US and perform at Pete Seeger's ninetieth birthday, were you surprised that this was that this was not discussed in the media? Um.
2: No. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> okay. yeah, yes and no. It was a heartbreaker that he wasn't... You know, we. one of the reasons we finally did succeed in getting Silvio Rodriguez's visa was because, you know, they felt... Um, we missed it by this much. We we He didn't get the clearance in time, but like a, a month or so later, we were able to develop a stronger... Um, uh, another tour for him, so we were disappointed, but... No, I'm not surprised that we don't get the media play. And, and I was speaking with folks earlier. We get more excited, we get more media attention if a referee makes a bad call in the end zone. <laughs> or if Ozzie Guillen says one positive thing about Fidel Castro, it's in the news for like three weeks. That's right. And do we hear about a visa getting denied for Silvia? No. Do we hear about the reality in Cuba like that? No. we hear anything positive about
1: Cuba like that? No. So, no, that's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's see. Um, I think this question is for Michael. When do you anticipate the Oakland flights will start? Uh, have you ever considered student discounts for the nearly <laughs> 200 low-income students from the U.S., many from California, currently studying medicine on a full scholarship in Cuba? So it's Oakland, and have you considered You can them? almost answer that
3: question.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um well, the flights, like I mentioned earlier, the flights from Oakland are, are, are challenging. Um, it's, I'm originally from the Bay Area. I'm from Pleasanton originally. So um, uh, you know it's my passion to get something done from, from the Bay Area. Um, uh, but um, for the reasons I mentioned, it's what difficult. Um, I'm hopeful, and uh, we looked at it uh, possibly in December or, or possibly some, uh, a time during the summer we can do it. Um, in terms of student discounts, um, it's it's a good idea. I think it's something that uh, that's kind of in the spirit of our company to to promote these interchanges of, of people and students in particular. Um, but yeah, if there's a group or individual students, feel free to contact me, and and, and we'll do something special for them.
5: Uh, let me just say, because yeah, I've been yeah. working with Congressman Lee, uh, Barbara Lee, uh, the congressman is doing an amazing job on the Oakland flight, and she and I met yesterday, actually, to talk about it in advance of the conference. Uh, and part of it, is, as Michael knows, it's, you know, uh, when you start off a new route, uh, one of the, the return trip is really a dead trip, unless you have the plane sit there the whole time. And so what we're looking at now Uh, is potential sponsorship, somebody to go ahead and fill that return trip um, to be able to start something from the Bay Area. And so Barbara and I have been working on targeting individual companies or high net worth individuals that may have a passion or love for the island to help us fill that gap. And we uh, talked about it yesterday and came up with a whole uh, uh, target list of folks that I'll be following up with.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, the next question is: uh, Where can you get great Cuban cigars and rum?
2: <laughs> Your house.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you open that one. In, uh, in Cuba, I guess. In Cuba. You have any?
5: in Cuba. You
2: can't bring them here. Okay. In the embargo.
5: But but let me, let me say sure, this. Sure. you know because I you know um, you know I I hope you know. Um, the, the current administration or however the election ends up uh, will go back to the Clinton days because during the Clinton days all of us could go ahead and bring back Cuban made product right. and Cuban made product is uh, coffee, rum and cigars and you know in those purchases it helps the Cuban government um And uh, you know it was cut out, and that aspect has not been reinstated right. and it 's something that when I talk to people i 'm always pushing for mm-hmm. um, if Cubans can come here when they visit me and buy wine and bring wine back and put it underneath the plane, then why shouldn 't I, in a democracy, be able to go ahead and buy rum there? <laughs> And bring it back the same way they do when they come and visit and spend money in my country. So that's one of the things I hope that many of us will continue to push because I think it's those little things that again change the larger picture. Well,
2: going back to Clinton at, at days is not a new paradigm. I, I vote for the much more than that.
5: Yeah, absolutely. It's
2: more yeah. cigars and, yeah. and rum. Right.
1: Yeah, no, I, I,
5: I agree.
1: Uh, I'm representing the National Association of Black Social Workers. We hope to travel to Cuba in 2013. How difficult will it be to get a group of 60 to 100 people to partake in an educational experience? Who shall I contact to help with securing a license and visas?
5: Well, I, I currently have a license now, and you know I'm not sure, and Michael knows better. But you know, many licenses have been turned down. We're pushing, and you know, I'm using whatever influence to have people write letters on my behalf because I brought you know everybody from Congress people to you know uh, mayors of major cities in the United States and a lot of different folks. And we've run tours as small as, you know, four people up to 107 people. So it is doable. And I'll tell you that Michael, you know, has everything wired on the ground to be able to do everything that's scalable. So you can do that small instrument trip of four. Up to uh, you know hundred plus, but I will tell you somebody that did hundred plus in Cuba. Very very difficult to do. Um, it, you know, it's. Uh, I think there was an earlier reference about infrastructure and the things that we take for granted. I have many of my staff here, Holly, Melinda, and Cali. Um, I to deal with what I refer to as Cuban time and Cuban process. I send them down two to three days in advance to go ahead and make sure that the schedules that are announced and all the things that we planned on are really there, because oftentimes t- things change last minute. Um, but I do think the licenses are available, and hopefully you know, it doesn't matter the size of the group, it will be available. The
2: licenses, uh, unfortunately, they're not as available as they used to be right now. Uh, we spoke earlier uh, uh, the reality of OFAC right now is that some licenses are getting approved, but the vast majority of them are not. They're just being, they're being denied by de- delay. That is to say, we've had projects pending since March, April with all the heavy hitters behind us. And as recently as uh, yesterday, Jeff Browner, uh, you know, I know about this one. And hey, Jeff Browner, the, the, the licensing chief. Yeah, yeah, you know, I haven't gotten around to that one yet. This was for some, one artist, and this, I'm using this as one example, super straight up no-brainer activity. And he can't get around to it yet for an activity she was supposed to do in August. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of organizations. Look at Harvard and Stanford and PBS and National Geographic, Insight. All of those are either delayed or denied. So the reality is... same thing true for students.
3: The answer is with universities, you don't have to apply for a license because universities already have them. Uh, Let me me give you an unfortunate um, example to corroborate that. With respect to MBA students um, or undergrads, we like to do a lot of co-curricular trips. I'm taking a group to Panama. It's not for credit, and so the students just sign up and we go and we learn. In order to go to Cuba, you've got to pay for credit. The USC a unit of credit is like $1,500. So that's on top of the, 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 the cost to go. So you could take a unit. So I, I, I wrote a letter through our legal counsel. I should have done it myself. Through the legal counsel asking for permission for a special license to take a group of MBA students to do a, a, do a, a, a study tour not for credit. And because I used the terms we'd like to do company visits, we'd like to have meetings with corporate executives, and we'd like to meet with, with people from the government ministry for briefings, and I didn't use the words co-sponsored, sponsored seminars, workshops. We got shut down simply because I used the wrong language. Well, that's the excuse in the it's- writing, that they, they, they were looking for a reason to shut us down. So start early, be persistent, be willing to wait.
2: Be prepared for not getting it. Bottom line. I have a, a dance group that's supposed to be there in about two weeks. And uh, Jeff got to me and says, oh, yeah, I, too much free time on that first day there. They arrive at 7 at night. He wanted them to do workshops at 7 at night when they get there. They were only going to be there for five days. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's, OFAC's not a pretty picture right now. Wait, wait, wait. No
1: Hold on. Go ahead. Go ahead, Saul. Go how ahead.
2: social workers qualify a general license.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Social workers? <laughs> okay. If you if you read the general license, there are certain categories of, of professionals that you don't need a license to travel to Cuba, but you have to be willing and able. And I should let Kirby answer this because he knows this. But I learned it from him. But having read it, you you have to be able to to explain why you were there and and how it met with your profession. And so if you cannot show a, a schedule of, of full-time activity, your point, mm-hmm. you could be in trouble, all right? Um, you know, yeah. some, some religious groups have gotten into trouble because they have – people have gone to the beach on the weekends.
4: That's
3: right. And, okay. Exactly. If you're going there as a religious trip and you're not, on, you're not in services on the weekend, then there's a question. So, again, you have – you can travel – the issue is on you. You can travel when you come back. They'll question you. You need to be able to justify why you were there. Okay? We,
5: we have actually done it uh, with agricultural groups. Uh, we work a lot with, for example, we did uh, one with the Napa Valley Vintners uh, and put together a whole series of meetings because food um, is evolving in Cuba and the Paladars are becoming uh, much more advanced, and you're finding that there's more of an appetite. Uh, right now, it's basically you know New Zealand, Australian, and European wines, uh, and there's very few California wines. And so we've brought down trips for the sole purpose of selling and educating, um, and that met the, li- uh, the obligation. Okay, there are... Well, Kirk, can we be mitigating you? I'm
1: sorry.
0: That, in a sense, that's totally different,
2: because there are certain categories. If you work for an agri- a food company, right. if you work for a company that's involved in any aspect of agricultural business, drinking it, uh, uh, distributing it exporting, it, exporting it, shipping it, storing it, growing it, you you are under a general
0: license, which means you don't have to inform Ask OFAC yeah. anything else. You can go to Cuba. Um, uh, if, if
5: it's for agriculture purposes, people are
1: people, 180 degrees there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there are four Bay Area cities with Cuban sister cities. 1,000 of Bay Area residents have gone. I'm supposed to ask for a show of hands of so how many people here would go via Oakland if you had a chance. There you, go.
3: you filled one plane
1: And so, when, when will you start? When will start? <laughs> this one is for Darius. Are you currently traveling under a P2P or another People to
2: people, people. Oh. people.
5: Yeah, I'm traveling in a, a people, people, people to people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh,
1: always, I describe my trips in 91 and 93 as, quote, life changing experiences. <laughs> In five years as the result of the quote unquote transition, will that description still apply? Will it be life changing, is that the question? I guess so, yeah.
5: I mean, I, I listen. I always think Cuba will be life changing because the attitude of the people, the culture, the architecture—everything is amazing. <clears throat> I think the Cubans eventually, short term, long term, are going to go through the same problems that we do in every major city of urban planning. You know, I live in the small town or village of Sonoma, and our city council voted down Pete's Coffee coming to town this week. <laughs> It was a tragic. I had nothing to do with it uh, but 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 I think that you know that 's one of the fears from an urban planning standpoint. Will it have the same charm? Will it have the same chemistry? Will it not be commercialized to the point of you know turning many of us off that go there for all the reasons that we go there? and so I think that they're you know on a Short term, I remember there was uh, probably five, six years ago, Michael and we did a trip, and I hadn't been in six months, and I walked into the Plaza de San Francisco, and there was a Benetton, and I was very disappointed to see the Benetton because, you know, the brand – sort of corrupted you know, one of the great plazas uh, luckily the business didn't work and they went out of business and, and so they took down the sign and now that location is, is being used for something else um, but I, I do think it will always have its charm but I think it's going to be about urban planning long-term. The, the, the government there at some point is going to have to sit back. I know they've done some of this, design the country into zones, protect cultural heritage, figure out how they're going to allow you know, development when Walmart shows up and wants to do a Walmart or Kmart or whatever else. They're going to have to figure out how to master plan the island. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a little bit to that point also is that, you know, the
4: U.S. Five, not the Cuban Five, the U.S. Five that was mentioned earlier. They're, the last thing they want to see is travel. Okay, they they will fight and and everything for agricultural trade and things like that. But once people, once U.S. citizens travel to Cuba freely, the embargo is over. So it's the last thing they want to see go. So they will let, you know, this happen, this happen, this happen. But when it comes to people traveling freely, it's the last thing that they want to see because it's over after that. Mm-hmm. So um, once Americans go over and see the realities of Cuba, you know, it's done.
1: Uh, I am asked to recognize that licensed travel service providers like Global Exchange send groups like social workers to Cuba on their general licenses. This is for Michael. If the embargo is dropped, will the charter company suffer? What is your future?
4: Well, for us, no, it's, it's you know, obviously we're, we've been proponents of lifting the travel restrictions and ending the embargo. A lot of people ask the same question. Well, isn't that against your interest? Because as soon as that happens, you know, the airlines are going to come in and it's going to be done for you guys. But um, for us, um, uh, you know, we know that we'll, we'll eventually turn into more of like a tour operator type of business. Um, and, and we're really not interested in so much of the air. We look. We're probably working closely with the airlines and with the uh, tour operators within Cuba to to do a different type of business. So our, our business will change uh, with it. So we're not we're not at all concerned about that.
5: And, and I will tell you, um, having traveled, you know, like you guys, you know, with a lot of different people, what makes michael's company so great is the people that they have on the ground and the relationships they have with certain tour guides and access and it's not a standard experience uh the people that they give you access to really show you a different side of cuba it's you just don't go to the tropicana and the traditional restaurant uh, they bring you out and introduce you to people that you never would have met different artists uh, different locations Uh, And they've done the hard work to build that network, and they're maintaining that network. And from an outsider's view, I think that's the type of thing that will be extremely valuable and very few other people will have. And that's not something that they'll be able to take away from them.
1: How can Cubans do business with us here that is... Cuban Educational and Cultural Institute would like to sell Cuban books to institutions in the United States. How can we facilitate that?
4: It's something that's allowable. Yeah. Informational and, and, material is something that's exempt from the embargo, so and, it's something and, that's allowable. And
2: the informational material is thanks to the Howard Ber- Howard Berman and the Berman Act. Howard Berman was replaced by Eleanor in the, as the head of the Congress's uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. She's the one that wanted to get rid of uh, she called uh, Clinton and wrote to Clinton when La Comenita dance troupe was here. She said, "Why are they getting visas? Why are you giving licenses? Why is Vicente Feu in the uh, United States last week to talk about the Cuban Five and sing? That's the person who's calling you now she's the new Howard Berman in reverse. <laughs> and so she's someone we are, and that crowd, that mentality is what we have to deal with.
5: And the, and the other thing I would tell you, and it's interesting for all of those who've been there, it's you know it's one of the few societies, where the true wealthiest and the true elites are the artists, uh, because the individuals that are making the most today are those that are, you know, some of the biggest and brightest names. And uh, you know, as an art collector, I would tell you, outside of Chinese contemporary, which is probably the hottest, you know, art market in the world right now that Cubans um, are a great investment. And there are many people, dealers that go down there and buy art. And the nice thing is that when you meet these Cuban artists and you do buy, is that those dollars actually trickle out into the neighborhoods. Those are the dollars that go to help the mothers, the aunts, the uncles. Um, They reform, uh, you know, literally whole communities. Uh, so I, you know, I tell people that that's one of those great investments when you're there. It's legal to go ahead and bring it back, uh, make it an investment in Cuban art. One, I think it may have long-term value, uh, and two, it really changes people's lives.
1: Uh, given the name of this conference, can anyone explain if there should be a special or something special about the relationship between Cuba and California?
5: Well, it, it, again, I think Kirby. You know, Kirby's done a lot of great work. You know, on this, and and you know, we are the greatest exporter, in my opinion, in the world of agricultural products. And I think that as Cuba continues to emerge as a major. Powerhouse with regard to tourism, that our, our agricultural markets will continue to go ahead and grow and prosper and that type of thing, and I think that that's where you're going to see a lot of you know opportunity economically, but then to everything that Bill does, I mean, you know, we're one of the great you know cultural uh, you know art centers in the world, and especially with what's happening in the visual arts i believe that you know in the next 25 years you're going to see major major call centers migrations from places in asia to cuba And Cuba's gonna become what India is today. Cuba's gonna become what the Philippines and many other places are because of how educated the population, many already speak English, and the proximity to our coastline. And so I think that, you know, as they plan and they've done a transition from sugar to, you know, other things like biotech and pharma that you've already talked about. But I think you're going to see services become a major economic driving force because of the education level, uh, and it'll be so much easier to go ahead and fly to Havana or Santiago or Santa Clara than to go ahead and fly to Mumbai or one of the you know other countries.
4: And I think also the um, the potential link, the commercial potential commercial link. Um, I think that the uh, Cuba was one of the top. Um, markets for uh, California rice producers back That's right. before the embargo That's right uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential um, commercial activity there once once these things can happen um, also in, in terms of, of tourism once uh, if there were uh, um, free flights and people can travel freely there's close to three million you know uh, tourists that travel to Cuba from other countries other than the United States, and those tourists can't travel to the US. They can't travel to Puerto Rico from Cuba. They can't travel to Puerto Rico. They can't travel to Miami. They can't travel to California. So you have this big, huge population of, of tourists that travel to Cuba, but they can't fly to the, to the United States. So this is really something that I think could also you know, have a positive impact on, on, on tourism within the United States.
3: So, let me add a quick comment there. We, we actually have the advantage of political distance. Um, when, when our university decided to go to Cuba, I ran it up the flag to the appropriate vice provost who walked into the president and said, we'd like to send students to Cuba. And his initial reaction was, well, we should take this to the board of trustees. There could be some political backlash. And then he said, no, this is a fight I would like to have. Um, but when I talk to colleagues who are closer to Cuba, particularly in Florida and so forth, they couldn't run these programs because of the powerful alums that they have in their in their, in their, their schools, which would shut, shut them down. So in a sense, we have a little bit more freedom to do things here, to engage. And the Cubans desperately need our engagement. Their students, their professors, they need the engagement with us. The dialogue the discussion, setting aside the political issues, just the basic, from the point of view of business, just the basic questions. You put a group of MBA students in front of Cuban business people and they start asking questions and the Cubans are, they're learning from the questions. Our students are learning from the answers, but the Cubans are learning about what it takes to compete in a global economy. So again, we we have, it's a slightly different answer to the question, but we have a lot to add because of our political distance.
1: We are struggling against the clock, so that was the last question we can take for now. Please stay in your seats because we're going to move into the next, next segment of the, uh, the conference right away. I want to thank the panel very much for your participation.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.